I'm Monica Olson. And I'm Jennifer Walsh. And you're listening to the Biophilic Solutions Podcast, where every other week we sit down with experts and thought leaders across industries in order to explore the innate connection between humans and nature and why we need nature to thrive. We truly believe that in order to tackle the global environmental problems we're facing, we as humans must reconnect to the natural world and come to a better understanding of how we fit in and how we are so interconnected. So in every episode, we'll interview new guests that help us uncover and highlight nature-based solutions to get us on a path to greater health, tackling climate change, and ultimately getting outside and connecting with nature. So let's get to today's episode. Hey, Monica. Hey, Jennifer. So, Monica, I have a question for you. When you picture the American dream as a concept, what image does that conjure up for you? Well, I guess the classic image is sort of that 1950s style home with a white picket fence, right, with a big lawn. And whether we like that or not, that's what's coming to me. Exactly. The American dream means a lot of things for a lot of people. But I think the nuclear family, the single family home, the white picket fence is sort of what we all have a vague sense of. However, there are some really pretty serious flaws baked into that model of housing and living, which is exactly what we're going to talk about today. Yep. Our guest today will be guiding us through it all. Her name is Diana Lind, and she's author of a fabulous new book called Brave New Home. Her background is in urban policy and architecture, and her book is a really insightful look at how the single-family home, suburban, became the gold standard of living. This book also explores the social, economic, and environmental factors that make the single-family home a pretty flawed model and what alternative housing models could look like. Yes, this is a really interesting conversation about the way we live and what we can do to reclaim the connection to nature and to each other through new modes of housing and living. And if you're listening to this from your own single-family suburban home, please don't panic. There are many tools in the toolbox, so to speak, and we'll talk through some of those with Diana. So let's get to our conversation with Diana Lind. Diana, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so excited to have you. We absolutely are devouring your book. Yeah, we really are. And we want to hear a little bit about yourself and what led to really your career in urban policy and housing. Sure. Thank you so much for having me and for reading the book. We were talking a little bit before we got started about how I grew up in New York City, and I feel like that kind of just framed my interest in cities just from the very beginning growing up in Manhattan among a very dense city and then later in life really recognizing that most people in the U.S. at least don't live that way. So that shaped a little bit of my worldview. But then shortly after I graduated from college, I started out writing about architecture and design. And that I think is really kind of when I started to become very interested in residential design. And in fact, worked on some books about that kind of more modern residential design. And then from there, I moved to Philadelphia to take a job at what was then a print quarterly publication called The Next American City, which over time has morphed into a fully digital website called Next City now. And really through that experience of many years of leading a nonprofit focused on urban policy issues, just became very versed in a lot of different types of issues around everything from economic development to placemaking, transportation, things like that. And I just had a lot of different ideas kind of swirling through my head. And later on, especially as 
the housing crisis accelerated, I really thought, well, this would be a good opportunity to take all those various different threads of experiences in different types of housing, experiences thinking about urban policy issues, and then also just kind of a fascination with these new ways that people are thinking about how to address various different social, economic, and environmental issues with different ways of living. So that's kind of what led me to working on this book. Yeah, I think the book is so interesting because when I started diving into it and thinking about it, because we are like in the U.S. more specifically, like we're I don't want to say program, but like the American dream is to have a home and you yeah. have a lot of acreage and you have the white picket fence and whatever that might be. But that's really not the healthiest version. So how did we get there? Like what led us to get to that place of like we thought that was the American dream? It's a long story. And I would say it's the first third of the book. But I can kind of summarize a little bit. And I think the important thing to recognize is that there is this idea of the American dream of the standalone home with a white picket fence, but that really wasn't the way that our country was initially brought up. The way that the country was really sort of settled in the beginning was people living in much more of an organic style of housing. So there would be multi-purpose styles of buildings, like ones where there was housing, but your workshop was there. And you also had a little bit of a farm and it might be more closely connected to a commercial center in a city. And just the fact that people didn't have cars at that point meant that you had to have a certain type of density for housing. So people wanted to be able to fulfill their daily needs with a short trip. That meant walking or, you know, a horse or whatever it might end up being, but it required a different style of housing. Also, people lived with extended family members because they were much more interconnected both in terms of their livelihoods were connected, whether it was to a family business or a family farm. And there wasn't the kind of same sort of retirement home community industry that existed back then. So for older parents, they really needed to live with a younger family member at some point in their lives. So there was just a a variety of different types of conditions that I think really led to housing that couldn't allow for people to live on a single family home that was long distance from town or from other houses or their community. Really over time, and I would say there were different types of housing that particularly started to become much more popular in, say, the 1800s and early 1900s, let's say boarding houses, apartment hotels, duplexes, that kind of multi-generational housing, all that type of housing, that diversity existed in the 1800s and early 1900s. But then when you start to get car infrastructure, highways, you start to have trolleys, people can start to expand beyond those cities. And cities were really actually getting quite crowded as well. I don't want to dismiss the fact that there were a lot of people in many cities, particularly immigrants living in squalid conditions that weren't dignified. But I think we kind of in certain ways overcompensated, starting with the idea of zoning that would separate residential from other different types of purposes in a city, making it very hard for you to have these kind of multi-purpose neighborhoods where people could get to all their needs quickly. And certainly in the early 1900s and around actually a century ago, both the government actually had a, a program called Own Your Own Home. And there was also sort of combined with that a bit of a essentially a nationwide media campaign telling people that you weren't a full American. You weren't doing best by your family to yourself if you weren't going to own your home and to live 
as a single nuclear family rather than an extended family. Combine this with frankly, racism that led to white flight over the course of a century, allowing people to move into neighborhoods where through deed restrictions and other forms, you could really restrict who was able to live in those kinds of communities in suburban areas. That certainly led to the growth of single family homes outside of cities. You also had a new industry of financing homes in terms of mortgages that enabled people to have so much financial upside and security from owning single family homes that it became sort of like you're penalized almost in our country. If you don't become a homeowner. And I kind of feel like I'm going on and on and on. But really, you know, sort of the expansion of a lot of, frankly, subsidized infrastructure that enabled single family homes to really expand throughout the mid-century period led us to where we are now, which is that we're a country where you can't, in many places, you can't live any other way. The zoning only allows for single family homes. It doesn't allow for an accessory dwelling unit. It doesn't allow for your home to be a duplex or a triplex or a fourplex. It doesn't allow for you to have other purposes within your neighborhood. And it's really kind of restricted a lot of neighborhoods, not just in the suburbs, but also in cities as well, where people are trying to think about how could we kind of take advantage of even downtown land. But oftentimes that land is reserved for single family homes and you can't build more densely there. So I think that there's that idea of the American dream. And often we think this is like our birthright in this country. And it's something that we've had for a long time, but it's been manufactured along the way with a lot of different kinds of incentives. We'll be right back after a quick break. Jennifer, guess what's coming up and where we get to hang out. What's that, Monica? The (laughs) Biophilic Leadership Summit. It's back this March 24th through 26th. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to see you in person again. It's been way too long. I know, me too. And we invite all our listeners to come to this year's summit. We're going to be exploring biophilic placemaking and how we use biophilic principles to promote health, happiness, and vitality in public spaces. Yes. And I was just reading over the schedule, which I'm very excited about. There are so many great speakers and panels. And when you get to join us, I'll be doing a nature walk and moderating a wonderful panel on activating community spaces with two incredible women, an architect and an urban planner. So this summit is put on by the Biophilic Institute and Biophilic Cities Project. So you can also come meet all of the leading experts in biophilia. And in addition to all incredible multiple presentations, we're going to have all sorts of great farm to table meals, plus cocktails, some book signings and lots of networking, which is always a favorite. And it's going to be at your and my favorite place, the Inn at Serenby. Yep, that's one of my favorite places, as you know. So join us in Sarah B for the 6th Annual Biophilic Leadership Summit from March 24th to March 26, 2024. And you can learn more about the summit and register today at biophilicsummit.com. That's biophilicsummit.com. We hope to see you there. We'll see you soon. Bye, Jen. Bye. Well, and the single family home is flawed in other ways, like in from environmental ways, as well Mm. as this sort of social, cultural, I don't know, it's like been embedded in us that that's what Mm -hmm. we want, to Jennifer's point. But let's talk about the environmental 
I don't want to say negatives, but challenges Mm -hmm. to traditional single family development. Yeah, certainly if you're going to have houses that are each on, say, a half acre lot, that's going to require you to live in a car dependent community. It's not going to allow you to live in the kind of community where you could walk to a lot of your daily needs, where you could bike. So just by virtue of having single family homes that are often spread out, that just sort of makes us much more car dependent. So there's obviously the kind of intense energy and fossil fuels that go into a car dependent lifestyle. In addition to that, though, also single family homes are increasingly encroaching on natural boundaries, right? So when you hear about wildfires in the West, a lot of times those are in communities where those are in like some of the most expensive communities because people have been pushed further and further out away from safer city areas. And it's starting to become an environmental concern there just with single-family homes extending into nature. Then there's also the fact that there's just tremendous amount of redundancy in terms of the appliances that people need, the space that people need Mm. to live in single-family homes. So certainly when you're in a kind of situation where people are able to share the infrastructure of a building or even just better share things like a refrigerator, all that furniture. I mean, it just kind of, it adds up over time with everyone having to buy all of those same kinds of appliances. And then single family homes really have been marketed to be larger than some would say that they need. Although it's it's very interesting how the pandemic has really shifted how much space people need at home now, right? Because people need home offices as well. But when you have a single family home that's 2,500 square feet, and it might just be for a couple, it's a lot more space that you need to heat and cool than you might otherwise need. So I think there are a lot of different kinds of potential ways in which single family homes can have negative environmental impacts. Well, it's funny that you say that because you know I think about the, I mean, I'm not everyone to each his own. Everyone likes different styles of home, but like that McMansion model. Mm-hmm. And interesting, you also talk about the environmental aspect, Monica, and then Diana saying like people are now going into nature because I know a lot of friends of mine that have moved upstate in New York. And now they're saying, you know, oh my gosh, we see bears. This is terrible. You know, I'm thinking, oh, this is their, this is their yard, yeah. not ours. So the wildlife is everywhere and people are really kind of fearful of it, yet they're moving into these spaces where this is where nature blooms. This is where the animals are. And it's um, troubling because what are we doing to those homes of the animals and how is that affecting their lifestyle as well? It's interesting thought process around that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that in many cases, we think about those kinds of suburban areas as not being like the kind of pristine nature of parks and whatnot. But that's still where there is, you know, there's deer, there's foxes, there's bears, there's whole ecosystems that are out in those places as well. And I think we're really kind of seeing the response to that in terms of things like wildfires as well. And I think another thing that's interesting to think of sort of social consequences that are potentially negative is you have these big suburban homes and whether that's 25 or 10,000 square feet with a lawn and a driveway and a garage. And so you drive in to that garage, you go into your house and maybe connected to your garage. You never see anybody, you know, your mail is dropped in the slot in the house. You have your fancy coffee maker, you have your fancy gym, now your office. And I think that 
so many people have become disconnected from their neighbors that they don't really know them. And I can't remember if you quoted it or if it's just sort of out there in the ether that the number one reasons people are happy, they state that they're happy, is if they know their neighbors. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. And I just think that that's interesting because we've created this infrastructure and to your point, the zoning, somebody said, oh, well, we're going to separate everything. We're going to separate the residential from the commercial. We're not going to let it be a little storefront like we might have in a big city downstairs and I can live upstairs. And so we're separated from each other, maybe even from our family because they're all throughout the house. And so I think there's also a mental toll. Absolutely. Yes. Environmental. And I just think, gosh, how do we get back to where we're creating in a more dense, multi-functional, multi-generational area? I want to like sort of shift into that area of like, so here we are, right? Obviously, COVID has sort of woken us up, I think, to a lot Mm -hmm. of different things. But we're still seeing prices go through the roof. In a sense, that is a housing crisis, right? For somebody who owns a house, that may be lovely that my house value has gone up. Doesn't matter because if I sell this one, I still stuck out there. You're stuck. It doesn't matter. And then it's really not great for younger generation trying to come in and build equity. What sort of contributed to this housing crisis and how can we start breaking this mold? Certainly single family homes are the more most expensive option that you're going to have, right? So if you could have a 3000 square foot home and instead that becomes three 1000 square foot apartments, those 1000 square foot apartments are going to be a lot less expensive than that much larger home. So I think that the lack of housing choice just in general, I think is kind of creating part of that housing crisis. Huge part of it is also just that we're not building enough housing. And again, that gets back to that zoning issue, right? So if our zoning is kind of set up with this 1950s American dream in mind, it's not going to allow for the amount of housing to be built that we really need. And I think that people are very averse to seeing their neighborhoods change. And that's understandable. But we also need to be recognizing that I was born 40 years ago. There's literally twice as many people on the planet now as there mm-hmm. were back then. We can't have just the same amount of housing and think that like we're not going to end up in this kind of housing crisis. So trying to address that, that's certainly a big part of why I wrote this book is recognizing that there are other different types of ways that people can live really fantastic lives that might be a different kind of American dream, but that also involve different types of housing. And in many cases, it won't require changing the character of your neighborhood. So a lot of people have become very interested in accessory dwelling units. These are the granny cottages, the in-law suites, and so on. They're a great example of how you can add more density and more housing without actually having to change what a neighborhood looks like, because it's just a backyard cottage, or it's just an addition to a house whatnot that has a little apartment next to it. And in a lot of cases, that kind of housing is the kind of housing that we need the most because it's the kind of housing that a young teacher could potentially live in. It's the kind of housing that could really go towards more affordable housing that isn't existing in a lot of our cities. So I think that it's both in terms of having other different types of housing options and really educating people about how important that is in terms of actually building the kind of housing that the numbers of housing that we're going to need to address the housing crisis. I think that's a huge, a huge part of it. In your work, are you seeing a certain part of the country that's really 
advocating for more of that? Or are there certain like cities that you're noticing more of this work being done? Yes. I mean, there are definitely cities, there certainly was a lot of attention paid to Minneapolis, which kind of flipped the zoning rules. So if the traditional zoning rules would be that you can build a single family home anywhere, they basically said, actually, it's the opposite of that. You can build if you want, a, you almost need a variance to get to build your <laughs> single family home. Wow, I love that. And enabled a variety of other different types of housing to be built on those single family home lots. And that was the outgrowth of a citywide conversation about what they want their city to look like 15 years from now and how addressing issues like segregation, environmental issues, social and mental well-being were all kind of tied into housing choices. There's been also a lot of discussion about how that hasn't been as successful as a lot of people would like, because in order to still build those kinds of housing, there are still a lot of regulations that are going to kind of get in the way. Even if you say, for example, enable accessory dwelling units in a community, if you don't make it easy for that to happen because you have rules about off-street parking or the proportion of the size of the house compared to the main house or that it is owner-occupied or whatever it might end up being, ultimately, like these kinds of other different types of regulations can get into the way. And that's not just in Minneapolis, but in a lot of other cases. California is the place that has really taken the lead on this issue. And I think part is because the housing crisis is such an urgent issue there. And basically, they've made it so that any lot could at least be turned into a duplex. It could have two houses on that same lot now. So that's really kind of changed how people are looking at their housing in California. And That's a great example of prior to some of these different reforms, particularly around accessory dwelling units, you had very few of these kinds of housing, accessory dwelling units being permits being pulled, and that has gone up. It's exploded. And likewise, you've seen a lot of interest from companies like the sort of Silicon Valley tech companies kind of trying to figure out how can you do prefab backyard cottages, but also Mm -hmm. other really interesting ideas around trying to think about how, like one of the huge barriers for people building accessory dwelling units is the fact that most people don't have the construction savvy. They don't have the money. It's not as easy to get an additional mortgage once you already have a mortgage. And there are companies that are starting to look at ways in which you can partner with them on actually building a backyard cottage or building a studio out of your garage, and then they'll split the revenue from renting that with you. Or they'll do it sort of as a flat rate fee that you can pay and sort of making it easier for people to actually build this. So we're still in the early days, I think, in terms of seeing how this is all going to shake out. The key is really, though, just starting to see some of these zoning reforms taking place. And after that's done, the market will respond in a powerful way. And that's just been the beginning, but it's kind of all over the country that you're starting to see that. There are obviously, I can say in Philadelphia, where I live, we've really been trying to think about how to address this issue. And it's fascinating to see in some cases where you're seeing pushback against this because the housing type in Philadelphia, it doesn't work as well with, say, a backyard cottage because we're a city of small row houses and brownstones. Like You can't easily add a little backyard cottage there. So there hasn't been as much of a push 
for that, but trying to figure out like what's the right mix for different types of places is going to be the interesting challenge. Why did the zoning segregate all of the types of housing originally? What was that reason? Why did we have that kind of Yeah, why did they suddenly say, you know, you can't have a bodega next to the single family and a live work? Like it's public health. And certainly there have been a lot of ways in which that has also been questioned, right? Was it really Mm -hmm. public health or was it an issue around kind of discriminating against lower income immigrants who might have been living much more densely? But certainly, you know, there are some really basic public health issues in terms of thinking about zoning that could address, well, certainly ensuring that people are not living in toxic neighborhoods, right? Like you don't want someone to be living right on top of, say, a refinery or other kinds of like heavy industry and so on. So obviously wanting to think of ways to kind of separate that out. But the kinds of other types of zoning around regulating how large a house is, how far it has to be set back from a road. These are kinds of zoning changes that really ended up being about trying to determine what financial level someone had to be at to live in a certain neighborhood, Uh, right? So Mm -hmm. it's like if you create a neighborhood where you have to have a certain size house with a certain size yard, you're really trying to say, well, only someone with a certain income or level of wealth can live in this neighborhood. And that's another way in which zoning ended up just sort of segregating people. Certainly in this country, it's along racial lines, but it's also just basically along class lines. And so the exciting thing about having different housing options is just that you automatically get more diversity there, just like Mm -hmm. diversity of different types of people. And if you're going to have a neighborhood that's just all single family homes, you're probably going to end up with most families of some sort. But the demographics of really who is in the U.S. at this point, it's not your typical nuclear family anymore. You know, people are not getting married at the same rates as they once were. People are not having children at the same rates that they once were. More families are living multi-generationally. What a household looks like is really starting to change. So it really doesn't make sense to have this kind of one-size-fits-all housing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you are seeing the, I mean, obviously, I'm sitting in Serenby, so That's an example of a very diverse housing mix with multi-generational sidewalks, all the things that we really want to see. And, you know, they had to fight against a lot of the zoning to make it look the way it does. Where are you seeing, are you seeing that in different places across the country, like new developments? Because I feel like there's still that conventional development, cul-de-sac, all single family is there a, yeah. a move to say you can't do that anymore, kind of like Minneapolis? Like you can't build a new development with only one type of housing? Is that possible? I don't think that you're seeing municipalities saying you can't do that. Instead, mm-hmm. you're starting to see more forward thinking developers starting to rethink what type of developments they're actually going to be making. It's actually funny you mentioned the word cul-de-sac because there's a project that's called cul-de-sac or a company called cul-de-sac near Tempe, Arizona, which is working on a project to create a sort of car-free environment and having a mix of different housing types there and really trying to build kind of an intentional community around that. So you're starting to see examples of that in various different places. I think that Serenby is pretty unique in terms of the kind of mix of housing types, its focus on walkability and 
and having those kinds of little neighborhoods with almost a little main street in it. There's not a ton of that. I still think that a lot of people and a lot of places are just kind of accepting of the norms that we've had in the past. And it would probably take both forward-thinking developers and forward-thinking municipalities to start challenging that in a lot of cases. I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens now that baby boomers are getting older. And that will start to, I think, change the trends of like, how do they want to live in retirement? What kind of retirement community do they want to live in? And I think that that will really shift that sort of 55 plus community landscape. I'm optimistic that we'll see better, more interesting, more diverse, different types of developments in the future. But by and large, I think most of the stuff that's getting built today is status quo. Yeah, which is unfortunate, too, because I think about like when you just said walkability is such a huge part of healthy communities like Monica's in Serenby. It's like that's a key ingredient is the walkability to the general store, to the mailroom, mailbox or what have you. And I live in a community called Ocean Grove, New Jersey, which was built in 1869. And it's very much like Serenby in a sense where the Mm -hmm. homes are closer together. Everyone has a front porch. The homes are built in every different way. But going back to the past, you can walk to everything. It's really a special place. But again, this was built in the 1800s and they built it in a way to kind of commune together. And it's yeah. beautiful. So there are elements of the past. I think we definitely need to go back to it and looking towards the future, like where Monica is. It's like Monica will probably go into like the housing that heals. You could talk about that, Monica. Well, which is a great kind of transition thinking about, I mean, not that we all don't want health at every age, but thinking about what is a wellness model, especially walkability is huge. And then, I mean, we should obviously dig into green space a lot, you know, nature, Mm -hmm. just whether that's adjacency integrated or truly being able to walk out into acres and acres and miles of trails. But talk about that. That's a chapter in the book, Housing That Heals. And you talk about what are the wellness outcomes that are baked into some models? Obviously, I'm slightly... Yeah. Biased. But, Sandy, <laughs> but, okay, but, can be. but and you know, you don't have to focus on that. But I mean, where does that concept start? Because sure. I think that's a very new idea. It is both new and it's old in the sense that when we were talking about public health and that being part of the rationale behind zoning, I think there's always been a connection between public health and architecture and the idea that there's different types of housing that could promote health. But I think in many cases, it's really sort of stopped at the basics of access to air and light. <laughs> and then, Which is you important. know, kind of, right. <laughs> and not gone really beyond that. And I think that there were maybe assumptions that there were, I think there were definitely assumptions a century ago that it was healthier to live in a community where you were in your standalone home But I think it was also a different time. It was not a time when you had the internet, when you had TV. It was a time when there were a lot of other different kinds of social infrastructure in neighborhoods. Not everyone had their own backyard pool. You would all go to the pool. You would all go to the rec center. The sort of ideas of bowling alone, that there were a lot of these kinds of social gathering places within communities. So it might not have been as stark a challenge as it is now when you have so few of those kinds of places for people to connect in person now. And then when you also take away the serendipitous bumping into your neighbor on the street, you really, it becomes harder for people to have that kind of social interaction. 
when I was looking into the idea of housing that heals, it was just, you know, I think that we're seeing across the housing landscape a lot of interest in this in various different ways. So there's definitely examples like hospitals starting to look into building housing because they're recognizing that it's actually, it's part of the prescription, frankly, for their patients. Mm. If they want people who are frequent ER users to get out of the ER, it's actually easier for them and better for them to build housing rather than to try to kind constantly treat these people cycling in and out of the ER. Wow. And just that stability of housing is so critical for people to be able to recover from whatever challenges, you know, health challenges they're facing. So you can look at it as an issue like that. We're seeing examples of landlords thinking about telehealth as being a new amenity that they can offer to their tenants rather than it just being, you know, the internet and TV. And certainly a lot of developments tout their gym, they tout their rooftop garden, these kinds of things. But I think that the thing that's so great about Serenby is the way in which it's addressing health from a bunch of different angles. So that walkability, but also having the kind of CSA and the community garden that you can participate in, the trails that you can walk in. Frankly, I think the aesthetic of a Serenby is beautiful and kind of calming and wonderful to experience as well. And then, you know, just sort of building a community that is also lifting up health as being something that it's focused on is naturally going to bring in people who are like-minded and interested in that and wanting to develop a more of a sense of community around that. But it's definitely something that we're starting to see in places where as developers are thinking about what kind of product they're developing, like how does this potentially impact the health of its residents? And being able to use that as a selling point, I think is a huge factor. Walkability is definitely desirable. And as people recognize more and more how important that is to their health, hopefully we'll start to see more developments that are kind of promoting that as well. But I think it's health is going to be, it has been, but it's just, it's a huge factor going ahead for people thinking about what kind of place they're going to be living in, whether it's the mental health stress of being in a place that's unsafe, or it could be living in a place that has good air quality, access to to green space and park space. These are all various different factors that people are thinking about in terms of their livability and choosing where to live as a result. Are you hearing, especially in this work in terms of healthy air, fresh air, light, connection to neighbor, are you hearing a lot about discussion of biophilic design from hospitals and from architects? Probably not as much as I should be. And I know that you all are promoters of that. I feel like one of the things is maybe some of the terminology gets kind of dumbed mm-hmm. down over when you get into like sort of the mainstream public, but it's not something that has been as much of a kind of catchphrase as much as, you know, probably would like. Yeah, we have a good friend, Tim Beatley, who's a professor at UVA, who you may know does biophilic cities. And I think the intersection of your work with his is really phenomenal. And just bringing in trees or looking at neighborhoods with full tree foliage and those without, or just any of us walking through them. We were up in New York, my husband and I recently visiting my sister-in-law. And if you're walking along the park, you have that shade. And even though it's a really hot day, there is that just canopy that's there. I mean, Jennifer knows this. She like lives in it. But versus <laughs> even going over a few streets and it's just concrete and it may Absolutely, be dynamic yeah. and fun and it's a city like I love New York. But it just that 
just those trees. And it, and we forget about that. And when people come to the neighborhoods or any neighborhood, right, where we talk to the ones with all of the foliage. And so I know Tim is working really hard with cities to bring those trees back in beyond that they clean the air, right, that their carbon sinks, but that they actually help people's health from a mental and physical well-being. Yeah, absolutely. We tear down those trees and we put in non-native grasses, like these huge lawns. Are you seeing any kind of like push on the zoning level, like bringing the parks in and trying to have deeper conversations on the urban policy? I mean, Atlanta, I think, is doing a lot of good stuff, but it's a day-to-day challenge with people taking trees down all the time. Sure. Yeah. I think that During the pandemic, there was a huge interest in 15-minute cities and this Mm -hmm. idea. And certainly the focus on green space was a huge part of that, like people just needing to be in a place outdoors. And a lot of cities then started to kind of rethink what kind of access to public space does this city have? And should we be doing more on this? And you can look to some of our counterparts in Europe in particular, which have taken streets that were thoroughfares and turned them into kind of park spaces just in order to create a green space for people so that it's easily walked to and so on. As you were talking, Monica, about all of the different benefits of trees, I was thinking about how we've had a lot of this research for such a long time in -hmm. terms of how having trees on a commercial corridor will bring a rise in people actually coming to that downtown area or that it will, in neighborhoods, it can increase property values. So there's a financial incentive. And then we have had recent studies in Philadelphia, for example, about how greening vacant lots can make those neighborhoods safer. And that, Mm -hmm. in fact, this is a huge way to both address neighborhood stress, like people's stress levels drop walking by a nicely maintained yard versus being around one that's trash strewn or whatnot, that this is a way to address stress and safety. And yet we haven't taken steps to actually taken some steps, right? We're doing some of it, but we haven't like made this part of thinking about like how to address crime and health in the city and a broad scale. So ultimately, I think there's a ton of research showing how important trees, green space, parks, et cetera, are to people's health and well-being. It's what you need is leadership to actually yeah, prioritize yeah. it and to say this is what matters to them. So like the example in France of in Paris, the mayor ran on the 15 minute city idea. And like, this is what I'm going to do as mayor and has really fulfilled that vision. You need leaders to say this is incredibly important to me and to the city and to get people to say we endorse that by voting for them. And that becomes a mandate when that person's elected. So I think it comes down to that more so than necessarily needing new evidence that this is important. Well, and I think so much of it is you know, this is why we did this podcast, right? It's exactly. an education, exactly. like, and, you know, biophilia is so much more than trees and a green wall, which are phenomenal, but really getting people to rethink, you know, people were like, well, how does zoning affect biophilia? But it's so true. And once we, for myself, I need examples, right? 
I need an example to say, you know, we could build just as many apartments, we can remove some of the parking spaces, and then we're going to have 30% green space or what in a city and showing that. And so that's what helps me. You know, we all learn in different ways. But once somebody gives me that comparison, I'm like, oh my God, well, why would I want that thing on the left when I really want this thing on the right? Because somebody showed me it's better. But otherwise, I'm just walking past it. I don't know any better. It just... That's what was built. And so how do we advocate for better things? And I do think it's like vote for leaders who want to kind of create a better life for everybody because everybody wants a better life. Everybody wants green space and a safe place to live. And so who are those people who are rethinking kind of, if you will, the sort of insane development that we've done in the past and saying, is this the right way? Just stopping. And just asking that question, which I feel like we don't do a lot. We just keep going and going and going and doing the same thing over and over again. Stephen Agron always talks about rut thinking. He's like, we're stuck in a rut. Mm -hmm. And so we have to step out and just question why just because we've always done it this way. doesn't mean we should continue to do it this way. I think, yeah, also just ensuring that people not feel like it's an either or, or it's a nice to have, but rather if we're trying, you know, in the depths of a pandemic or a financial crisis, that these actually are legitimate tools, not just accessories on um, and things that we do when the times are good, but rather like these are actual solutions to the challenges that we're facing right now. I think it's a phenomenal point. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. that's a phenomenal point that we write stuff off like, oh, it's too expensive or they only do it here or we can't do that we haven't done that before and it's just like why can't we just sit down and have a conversation and think about well what would be the path what would be the solution towards that better answer rather than just dismissing it in so many ways and I think COVID is an interesting thing not to you know it's like we keep thinking it's over (laughs) (laughs) and but you know that that did change a lot of things especially I think you say in the book, I think maybe that, you know, a lot of kids moved home out of their single apartments by themselves because they wanted to move home or they moved in with kind of a pod because, again, we wanted that connectivity, right? When it's just you at home, so much of what we've built causes loneliness. Yeah, we're putting those silos. You're right. Mm-hmm. No, you're right. I think what you just said, Diana, about these like uh, the things or the accessories, but they're not accessories. They're what we need for human health that we're pushed away for so long. But like what you just said, Monica, about COVID has opened our eyes. And I think more people are getting educated and want to be educated. So like you said, this is why we have our podcast. We can have these conversations. So I learn more and I can advocate wherever I might be as to why this matters. I think these little like trickles of information really makes a huge step forward to where we need to go versus like, this is just how it was done in the past. Forget about it. But we need to really step up and be the voices of change if we want to see change. And do you think like, and this is something that the listeners will know that I'm kind of hooked on is like language and branding and marketing. And so the tiny home movement, I think, I don't know, it's gotten a little bit quieter, but that would be an example potentially of a maybe a movable ADU accessory dwelling unit, right? But 
do you see a better way to talk about this for people? Like, cause that's the other thing, right? How do you, you I probably use, we say the word zoning and policy and people like, are like, okay, I'm going to go. <laughs> and you're like, no, 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 no it's super yeah, interesting. Yeah. And they're like, right. yeah, not really. <laughs> yeah. Tiny home. That sounds yeah. cool. I'll talk to you about yeah. a tiny home. So yeah. do you have a philosophy of like how to talk to the general public? Yes. I think, you know, tiny home is such an interesting example where it's like that made living small feel both like cheerful and fun and exciting and something better. So there's some ways in which I think that has been great branding, rebranding of a certain housing type. In other ways, I also am like 400 square feet, not so tiny for, you know, a lot of people in New York City living in a studio mm-hmm. apartment that's 200 or 300 square feet is totally the norm. And and a lot of people in other places, it's not so tiny. So sometimes I think like, oh, okay, is it helpful to sort of focus on the size factor and say like, that's like too small? But I think that in general, trying to be conscious of the language that it's more like a lesson, frankly, for reporters rather than for regular people around how they talk about housing. You know, so if a person is in their 20s and living with their parents, instead of thinking of this as, well, first of all, the multi-generational way that most people live around the world and ways that younger people build wealth and help out with their families and look after their younger siblings and so on, it's called failure to launch. And instead of calling people when an extended family member comes to live with you, calling that doubling up, thinking of this as living with kin or whatever it might end up being. Like there's just ways in which I think there's often anything living outside of the single family unit, nuclear Mm -hmm. unit is often seen as it's just diminished in the press. And I think that a lot of journalists kind of fall into that. And they've talked about co-living as adult dorms and things like that. So it's just like, there's often cheap shots that I think that people could just with tweaking their language and thinking about why am I calling it X, potentially shift how people think about this. But getting back to Jennifer's point about using the book as advocating, I would say that it got the book got a write up in the New York Times. Like my proudest moment was when I got a Google alert that someone used the book as like a piece of evidence for a local zoning hearing around you know, encouraging <laughs> housing yes. in a Connecticut neighborhood as sort of like That's amazing. you know an example of something that local leaders should read and think about and using some of the statistics and ideas in it that way. And I think that like, that's the kind of educating yourself through a podcast, through books, things like that. And then kind of using that as a way to think about your own role in your community to kind of advocate for the kind of housing or neighborhood that you really want to see. I love that. I love that. And I think that might be a good place to stop there. I mean, are there any other things that you're working on that we can share or should know about? Or how do we support you? Well, thank you for that. I would say I'm thinking about a a next book, but don't really have anything Mm. else to share in that regard. So I would say the main thing would be certainly reading the book, sharing it with people who you think might be interested in it, and also with the ones who might be skeptical, as that's Mm -hmm. also important. So absolutely. Are you on social media? So we'll put everything in our show notes, but are you on social as well or no? 
It's funny. I actually recently was, I got rid of most of my social media. I'm still on LinkedIn. Um, that's one way to Perfect. find me. We love um, that. But certainly we'll be happy to share some of my material that way. Fantastic. Yeah, we, we support LinkedIn. I think yes. <laughs> we have a love hate with social media. It's super beneficial, but like everyone else. Um, exactly. exactly. Might, be, might be a short break, but it's a useful one. I know. I know. Well, Diana, thank you so yeah. much. It's been such a joy and really appreciate your time. Yeah, so many teachings and learnings. Putting the book out there and putting the information out because the more it's documented, it's like, oh, then it's real. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> that's true. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you. I thought that conversation was absolutely fascinating. There is so much I want to debrief, but I guess I'll start by asking what your initial takeaways are. Sure. So I think a couple of things right off the bat, and to paraphrase Steve Nygren again, I think the first step in all of this is we have to get out of our rut thinking. And to do that, we need to know what the issues are and what the solutions are. And to Diana's point, so much development that's happening right now is just more of the same, which is really disappointing. If we know that these massive single family homes on these huge plots of land are really draining resources and contributing to the housing crisis, we can start advocating for alternative housing solutions, including density. The second thing that struck me is the idea of using language and branding in a more thoughtful way when we talk about housing. Yes, and I love that you always bring up the word language. So I really think what stood out to me, and I love the example she used of the 20-something who lives at home. There's a stereotype that a person is lazy and immature when really someone is living at home to save money, which is great, but also helps out with older relatives or whatever the case may be. That's really admirable and the complete opposite of what we usually see. Yes. So I think shifting the language is really important. But what about you? What other things stood out to you? Well, I don't think it would come as a shock to anyone that I was really fascinated by the idea of housing that heals. There are so many health outcomes that depend on human connection, tree cover, walkability, and access to green space that we have taken for granted in the past. But I think that for many people, COVID has really opened their eyes to the importance of living somewhere that makes you feel good and that has access to all the things that help us thrive. Exactly. So to wrap up, we highly recommend that all of our listeners grab a copy of Brave New Home. It's really insightful and it's solutions oriented, which we love. Absolutely. And we'll get back together in a couple of weeks. So see you soon, Monica. Bye, Jennifer. Talk to you later. Thanks so much for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Give us a five star rating and please leave us a review. It really goes such a long way towards helping us reach a wider audience and sharing these amazing interviews and solutions with the world. Absolutely. So thanks so much for following and reviewing the podcast. And we'll be back with another amazing interview in two weeks. You're now a part of the biophilic movement. 